0: It's talk time. Presumably you have seen the movie, or you just don't care about spoilers. Either way, it's fine.
1: Yeah, we're spoiling from here on out.
0: We're spoilering all the time. Spoiling, Spoiling all the time. So get ready for it. So let's talk about what actually happens in this film. If you haven't seen it, you might need an explanation. And if you have seen it... If you, you still haven't need seen
1: it. it at this point, I mean, I just don't care, right? No, like, right? yeah. You're, no, you are say. listening to a podcast about John Cassavetes, and we told you to go watch the movie. We
0: told you. No, but what I was going to say is, if you haven't seen the movie, it wouldn't make sense. But also, if you have seen the movie, it might not make sense. You may still need a little help being like, what's going on here? What's happening? So, this is a movie about a guy named Cosmo Vitelli, played by Ben Gazzara. Cosmo Vitelli owns a seedy but evidently very successful or at least successful enough strip club in Los Angeles called the Crazy Horse West. At the opening of the film we see Cosmo paying off a significant debt. We don't really know how much money he's been paying off but there's some reference in the dialogue to like you've been paying this off for like seven years and also the guy he's paying off is like hey Cosmo now you can work for yourself. Maybe it's important to clarify, too, that when he's paying off money in the beginning, he's not, like, paying it to the federal government. He's not, like, giving it to the bank. He's paying off mobsters.
1: It's an illegal payment.
0: It's an illegal—it is debt that he obtained in shady ways. And uh, he's paying off in a shady way. So, what better way to celebrate getting out of your debt to the mob? Uh, Go out and do some gambling at a mob-run gambling joint and get into even more debt with them, which is exactly what Cosmo does— at the end of the night, he is, uh, what is it, like $23,000 in debt? It's a lot of debt. For any day, but also, like, for 1976.
1: Can we, what's the inflated inflation-adjusted value of
0: $23,000? Let's find out. According to... $10. There's, there's a website called thedollartimes.com. Are we going to use that? Maybe I should use something. You don't
1: mm-hmm. trust thedollartimes.com?
0: <laughs> According to thedollartimes.com, do- $23,000 in 1976 today that would be almost $123,000. Okay. This is the dollar times. Let's see if there's a different source. I don't want to get you doubt
1: re- the veracity of their inflation calculator.
0: There is also a website called officialdata.com. <laughs> it sounds very official. I love the internet. I think that what we can just safely assume is that is a ton of debt to rack up with one night of gambling. I think what I just love about this particular narrative point is that a guy would get out of debt and be like, I'm going to celebrate by going out and getting into even more debt. Uh, And that's what Cosmo does. So he's in debt with the mob. It's even more money than before. And so they come to him and say, hey, listen, you owe us so much. You're at our mercy now. We want you to do a hit You've got to kill someone for us in order to get out of this debt. So they tell him that he is to kill a small time Chinese bookie who they don't really give a reason. They're like, well, this guy's just kind of pesky. Like, we don't want this guy around anymore. Go kill this guy and you'll be free and clear. So Cosmo does this. He does the hit and uh, he succeeds, which is kind of a surprise. And the even bigger twist that he discovers is that this was not a small time bookie. This was like a big deal Chinese mafia kingpin who he took out. And also, he was not meant to succeed. This was really like a suicide mission that he was sent on, presumably so the mob could take over his club. He was not supposed to actually be able to kill this guy. So that happens. The mob tries to kill him afterwards because he's gotten away with this thing. And then Cosmo goes back to the club with a bullet wound. That's the end. I think that's not the best synopsis. But what, again, is, what does IMDb say? Oh, yeah, let's read the IMDb synopsis. I guess I could have done that more easily. I don't know why I want to try my own synopsis.
1: That's fun. It's fun to write your own synopsis.
0: It's fun to know what you think happened. Okay, here's the IMDb logline. A proud strip club owner is forced to come to terms with himself as a man when his gambling addiction gets him in hot water with the mob who offer him only one alternative. I do not think he actually comes to terms with himself as a man. I'm just going to say that right now.
1: That's pretty good. It's a... A pretty gripping log line. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know how accurate that is. In any case. In any case. Your Yours was better.
0: Thank you. Thank you, honey.
1: That's right. That's how you do it.
0: That's, that's how you stay married. I think also it is a, a hard film to summarize because it's a weird film. It's kind of hard to say how it ends. I mean, it ends with him doing this hit, and then the mob tries to kill him. He escapes, and he just goes back to the club and like it's kind of unclear where is this going what's happening for this guy there may be certain aspects of this film that sound really exciting to you and again like we've talked about it does have certain very classic film noir elements certain things that are reminiscent of a good gangster flick we have uh these ominous debts that have, can't be repaid a la the godfather we have a guy who gets enticed into committing a murder only the murder is not what it seems to be which you know resonates a lot with double indemnity there's, like, a version of this where Fred McMurray is like, I was in too deep, and I had no choice but to do. Blah, blah, blah.
1: Yeah, there's a way to... there. You can em- envision a version of this movie that is a conventional noir, that is twisty and turny and exciting. But since you watched this movie, you know that that's not the movie John Cassavetes made. And, in fact, more running time is devoted to pathetic cabaret acts and meandering conversations than is devoted to any of that plot stuff that you just mentioned.
0: There are various points in the movie where you feel like it's really going to start to pick up uh some speed and you know be a little more exciting. But then it's like the movie has a way of really deflating itself and taking the wind out of its own sails because it chooses to pivot from the really exciting action, violence, you know, gritty underworld stuff and focus on minutia. Uh, I feel like a, one, one thing I really want to start with, when we're talking about how this film really foils your expectations is quite simply the opening music, which we played at the beginning of this podcast and we'll play again. It really deceives you. First, you hear it and you're like, all right, this is cool. This is going somewhere. This is cool guy music. Cosmo standing on the side of the road. He's kind of like strutting on the sidewalk. You're like, what's this guy gonna do? He's gonna like shoot somebody? Like, cool guy music.
1: Real Spirit in the Sky vibes here. Yeah,
0: Spirit in the Sky. And I feel like when the music ends, what I expect is like a cut to like him being in a room with someone, like punching them with brass knuckles, being like, "What? Give me the wood! Give me the money!" You're like, "What? What do you think I am? Wow! Like, you think it's gonna get good and cool and gritty? But it doesn't. The song keeps going. That scene lasts a little bit longer, and instead of doing cool guy stuff, Cosmo has a hard time helping people park. Let's listen.
2: Are you looking for us? Huh? Come on in. There you go. All right. There you go. Come on, ladies. Thank you. There you All go. Right. Vince, see the Negastator, too, huh? They... Listen, you drive around the corner, you park in this parking lot, huh? All right. Okay. Okay. Where's the kid? Go on, go on. Well, where's the kid who parks the cars, Vince? Go find him.
0: Just from listening to that, for me, first of all, it's a long clip. doesn't really need to go on for that long. And all you have to do is listen to it to be like, oh, this isn't very exciting. He's like trying to find the valet. Where's the? Where's? Where's Vince? Where's the kid? What's happening here? And even I like that the music continues too and it's got this like rawr, rawr, quality to it of like like
1: these are like action hits, like punctuating hits in the music. Yeah, right. And the punctuation is like he's telling someone where the parking lot is.
0: Where's the kid? Where? Where do they go? This parking lot, huh? right.
1: That's a different sound effect. It's I like a like Rachel it's... Dratch sound.
0: <laughs> that's, uh, that's a Debbie Downer it's a d- sound. Okay, but it's kind of like that. It's like a... It's All right. that's just to say, this goes from being... A moment with some momentum to it, to like uh, we're packing the cars. It's not cool. And
1: look, this is this is the whole movie. Um, I, here, you know, I didn't want to spoil too much in our before segment where we were talking about the movie and like why are we starting here. Here, I can kind of spell it out a little bit more now that everyone everyone has seen the film. You can gauge John Cassavetes as a director. You can measure him as a director by. Measuring the distance between this movie and how Hollywood would make this movie, how Hollywood would tell this story, all of the extraneous stuff, all of the the o- opaque conversations that are had in this movie, all of the uh, interruptions to the action in this movie, all of these things are Cassavetes' way of making a movie. And so all of those things that frustrate your your enjoyment of this movie, I think you can use that as a way of thinking, okay, what if this guy isn't just incompetent? What if he just, uh, what if he isn't just a bad filmmaker, but what if he's making a movie like this on purpose? And then if so, what kind of movie is he trying to make? What is he trying to do by making a movie in this way rather than making it in a much more conventional way? And so it's fascinating to me that this is his attempt to try and square the circle a little bit and make a movie that people actually want to go see, but also it's still very much a John Cassavetes independent film. And it's so fascinating to me that you can kind of see that play out here. And of course, it was a, it was a failure at the box office. It, uh, people hated this movie, uh, but you can see the gears turning here in terms of How he's using a genre and how he's using conventions of filmmaking and how he's using expectations in order to do something that is very, very different from what Hollywood films typically do. And we can use genre to talk about this, too, I think, also, which is partly also why I wanted to start here, because this is... A genre movie like this is a a neo-noir, like kind of in the same ballpark as movies like Chinatown. Uh, The Long Goodbye uh, is, you know, a, a movie that I love that is kind of similar in many ways.
0: Yeah. So it is fun to think about how this is John Cassavetes taking a genre and trying to like play with it and flip it on its head in a fun way. But he does it so aggressively, maybe, that it just becomes difficult to watch for lots of people.
1: And I think, you know, I would even go further than that because he's aiming for some commercial success and some commercial appeal. You can think about this movie in relation to some other commercial successes. Like you mentioned The Godfather, right? The quintessential modern mob movie and also Dynamite at the box office, right? That movie like saved Hollywood uh, by making so much money. Everyone talks about Star Wars and they talk about Jaws. The Godfather was really uh, even earlier than that a movie that raked in lots of money at the box office and was very very successful but also was a you know a, a sophisticated film uh, adult themes I think you know in some ways uh, killing of a chinese bookie is John Cassavetes trying to do something like The Godfather uh, it's a movie about loyalty it's a movie about money um, it's a movie about independence and it's a movie about success and what those things mean, but they're refracted through Cassavetti's sensibility, which is very, very different. You can also look at another successful film from 1972, Cabaret, Bob Fosse's wonderful film about also a nightclub owner, uh, also about the relationship between the art and freedom that goes on inside a performance space and inside a creative space and the pressures from outside that space that impinge upon it and threaten it. You know, Cabaret is also very similar to Killing of a Chinese Bookie. But again, the way the story gets told and, and Cassavetti's proclivities as a filmmaker lead him to go in very different directions stylistically and in terms of the, the narrative flow of the film. But you can see this is a movie like on an island off by itself. And I think sometimes this is how Cassavetes gets talked about is like he's just totally his own thing. He's the father of American independent cinema and like a sui generis genius who's just making his own films that are totally, totally different from everybody else. We kind of talked about him in this way a little bit earlier because it's helpful to emphasize that he's a unique filmmaker, but he's not a filmmaker that's totally cut off from the rest of cinema. It's not like this guy didn't go to the movies and like didn't live in Los Angeles and work in Hollywood.
0: He knew what was going on in the industry at the time. And I think that his work was in many ways in conversation with what else was being made.
1: Except that it's very different. Can
0: we we play another clip of of a scene that would never. Yeah. So as we said, Cosmo's in debt and he is therefore forced to do this hit. So at a certain point, the mob just shows up at his club. They're like, get in the car. You're doing it now and they've got a lot of uh, instructions that they want to share with him. Uh, Warning, as usual, this is kind of a long clip, so just roll with it.
2: you see this? You know where the Laurel-Ventura freeway is? We go over Laurel. Two blocks on the other side of the valley, past Ventura Boulevard. Stay to your right under the bridge you get on. Stay to your right on the freeway to get to the Hollywood. You take that straight until you come to Three Prong Freeway. It's on the map. Take a look at it. It's where one freeway becomes three freeways, the Pasadena, the Santa Ana and the Harbor. You take the Pasadena on your left. Stay on that till you get to Rossmore. Get off the Rossmore exit. Go east till you come to Philburn. It's on the map. Park the car. Walk seven blocks. Walton and Graham. It's all marked. Here's the book steps are in there. None. <clears throat> the police car came by. but it. takes kept right on going. Here's the key. Now, we got it from the locksmith who put the charmers' locks in. We know it works. For the back stairs only, Cosmo. Yeah, you gotta stop off at a joint and buy some beef. You got three dogs by 12 hamburgers don't put mustard on them either and no pickle on it or ketchup and don't put any onions on them yeah
0: yeah
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> for
0: some reason about like the no no pickles no onions i just think it's so funny i also like what ugh, such long detailed driving instruction. I'm like, what, what movie pauses in this way? Like, it makes me think about Robert Bresson and in Pickpocket and how are all, they're all the shots of the guy going up the stairs. Oh, like, why are those there? This is sort of like the equivalent of if, you know, you saw Chinatown, we're like, oh my God, where's Evelyn right now? And they're like, she's in Chinatown meeting at that guy's house. And Jack was like, how do I get to Chinatown? Can someone really like take five minutes to explain like how I drive to Chinatown? Like, How do I get there? What route should I take? Where do the highways converge? Like, where should I park? how many blocks do i have to walk like and we should, it's also worth noting too that this scene is extremely underlit it's a very dark car so you've got these like shadowy like guys in a car like holding out maps and being like yeah no onions like it is it is very anticlimactic
1: this is the kind of scene that would just be cut out right or or cut down significantly in a hollywood movie um because it doesn't really add to the story. Like you don't need to know what the directions are to get to this place. Maybe it's useful to know that there are these dogs and that he'll have to negotiate getting by the dogs with the meat because that sets up an expectation that can then be paid off. But there is no value to, you, you know, you go past Ventura and you make a right onto the freeway and then you go this far and then you get off the freeway at this street it's purely extraneous information. And this movie is full of this kind of stuff, right? These little moments, and Cassavetti's films in general are kind of chock full of this kind of stuff. These extraneous little moments that that don't really move the story forward in any kind of clear way, um, but that Cassavetes thinks are really important to the film that he's trying to make. And I want to say it's somewhere in Ray Carney and where he says that um, Cosmo is like, If I'm remembering right, he says it's like as if Charles Foster Kane was stuck in a De Sica movie, right? That like this guy who's the man of action, who's like this this strong protagonist figure who knows what he wants and is aiming to get it is like trapped in this cinematic universe that is full of incidental, mundane, neorealist, everyday life. Uh, and the jarring clash of those two sensibilities coming together is part of what makes the film interesting. And this is the sort of stuff like this is like bicycle thieves stuff, right?
0: Yeah, it really does have like a neorealist bent. We talked about Mikey and Nikki, the Elaine May film that Cass Fettis was in around the same time that this was made. There's a character in that movie who was also trying to perform a hit, but at a certain point, he he's arriving to do the hit and he like can't find a place to park. And the way that this scene is like, no, hitmen aren't cool. They're like, and it's not like a cool profession. There's just all this like minutia, and there are like logistical problems. Like, oh, uh, where do I park? Like, well, that's kind of happening here too, where you're performing this hit. It's supposed to be like this exciting gangster moment, but really, it's like, look at this map. Like, da da da. Like, park here. Get on this highway. No onions. No mustard. So now that Cosmo has his instructions, the mob has given him a stolen car to drive on all these freeways.
1: Which which immediately breaks down.
0: Yeah, which immediately gets a flat tire.
1: And then we watch him uh, negotiate getting a flat on the highway and then having to put the hood up so the cars behind can see that the car is broken down.
0: Another very uncool moment. Cosmo then jogs over to a gas station, calls a cab, which is going to take him to the hit, which is really hysterical to me that you would call a taxi to the hit. And then while he's waiting... He is, you know, as always, concerned with what's going on at the club, so he calls the club to see what's up, and uh, it's a pretty great conversation that follows.
2: Sonny, how's it going? Well, who's on stage? Margot and Sherry. Why are only two girls on stage? Where's Teddy? He uh, just came up. All right, well, what's he singing? What song is he singing, Sonny? But how can that be... Sonny, how can that be the song with only two girls on stage? What? Sonny! Well, who's this? Vince. Vince, I can't understand Sonny. Yeah, well, who's on stage now? The the the, uh, the, the short girl? Uh, Margot Donna, right? And the tall girl? Right, Sherry. Yeah. And uh, what, what number is it? Is it the Paris number? The Paris number. For Christ's sake, you've been at the place seven years. You don't know what the Paris number is? (laughs) Well, are there signs on the wall? P A R. The Paris number. Are there letters on the wall that say P A R? There's another card that says Moon. Well, what's he singing? Is it I Can't Give You Anything But Love, Baby? I can't give you anything but love, baby. What a
0: fabulous moment. I just, I can see how if you go into this movie theater and you're going to see this movie and you've heard about a one under the influence, you've seen it, you know, like, oh, John Caspace is on the rise. I'm so excited. This would be a very frustrating moment for you. Always be frustrating. Uh, A real sense of why is this here? Although for me watching them now and listening to them now, I think this is really funny. I think this is hysterical. yeah
1: yeah I wanted to I wanted to ask you about that because I heard you laughing <laughs> uh, I was laughing too through these clips uh, audiences hated this oh, but yeah. we're watching it and frankly, it's hilarious like uh, not just this scene in the phone booth, but the stuff about the directions and all of these other things. I find it very deeply comic, actually, uh, that there is a kind of, I don't know, Cassavetti seems amused by by the juxtaposition between grand, big events and really small, like, mundane events. And yeah. the way that those clash together, I think is great.
0: Well, I think in in uh, in Caspedi's other films that are more like family dramas, he is so good at taking these tiny moments or like these glances or like, uh, it's often glances, like glances that you would think would mean nothing or like too quick to matter, but actually like filling them with dramatic tension. He is a master of taking like small, mundane conversations and suddenly you're like, oh no, actually this is like a big dramatic conflict. He gets drama- out of these small moments. And I feel like here he's using those small moments, uh, for humor for comedy. Yeah. Yeah. But we can see why this would be a frustrating film. Um, I'm going to refer now to one of my favorite books on John Cassavetes called where does it happen? John Cassavetes and cinema at the breaking point by George Kuvaros. Great book. But in his, uh, discussion of this particular film, Kuvaros describes it as, um, a film that is marked by a sense of temporal disturbance You get that here. You've got these moments, these scenes that are really, really long and kind of seem to be about nothing. He also uses words like elusive, abrupt, a gnawing sense of distraction, a sense of always being too soon or too late. And there is this way in which we are seeing this logistical legwork that leads up to the killing and all of this, all this emphasis on like detail. It doesn't really matter. And he has a sense of distraction, a sense that Cosmo... He's doing this big thing. He's about to commit murder, but he's still like, oh, what's going on at the club? Is the club okay? I got to check on the club. What number are they doing? He really can't like go with the club. And his mind is still there. And it's also worth noting maybe at this point too, that Cosmo's club is like really not cool. A lot of weird skits and like weird characters and a lot of stuff that's like profoundly unsexy. And yet like Cosmo is still really into it. Like this is the meat of his life. What happens in this club?
1: He's totally invested. He, Completely. His- He is fully invested in the success of this club. Can I say also, superb telephone acting. I think so. You know, this is a piece of acting that gets taken for granted a lot. Doing the scene on the phone. Ben Gazzara is a master. He really is. A master of the telephone performance.
0: There's a part where his eyes really widen and he's like, the Paris number. Like you can just like see in his eyes that it just looks like he's gonna have a stroke because he's so stressed out that whoever he's talking to has no idea what's going on. And he's like, but what are there props? You know, like
1: he believes it. Yeah. He is talking to another person on the other end of that phone.
0: There's a look on his face. That's more than just irritation. There's like a hint of fear in there. Like, he's not afraid of the mobsters. He's afraid that, like, something isn't going right on stage. Like, there is a look of animal fear in his eyes.
1: Which he doesn't show when he's really doing the, the hit. Yeah. Um, and to your point about these small moments, this is part of the reason, I think, why cassavetti shot so much film. He knew that he was looking, in part, for these really small, subtle moments. Glances, facial expressions ways of reading a line of dialogue that he could capture and, and turn into something, right? Like he he was seeking this kind of thing in his filmmaking practice, which is why he shot so much film for these movies. And it's why his movies focus on these small moments um, so much. But I wouldn't say that he is a neorealist filmmaker. I mean, I, I mentioned De Sica, but I think this movie draws from neorealism, but it is not exactly a neorealist film. I think that Cassavetes, as an artist, is interested in something a little bit different than just this sort of authentic, truthful portrayal of mundane real life. And I realize that's like a back of the envelope, like bad take on what neorealism was. So if you're a film scholar and you're invested in that, like, don't at me, I guess I, I, you know, that this is like the cliff's nose version of neorealism, right? Um, well,
0: I think also too, neorealism kind of presumes that, uh, it is accessing a certain type of authenticity. And it's like with real people who aren't trying to be anything, they're just living real lives. Whereas Cassavetti's his films really presume that everybody is acting all the time, that the characters are themselves performers. They're performing in professional spaces. They're performing at home. And like, He's trying to tap into all of the ways in which people are bullshitting all the time. And that's a very different kind of view of human nature and human behavior, which I think really sets it apart. And again, he's, as you were saying, he's looking for different behaviors. He's not looking for someone who's like walking around looking for a bicycle or someone who's like putting up a sign while a kid plays an accordion. He's looking for someone who is really insecure about their mortality and is telling a ton of knock-knock jokes and won't shut up and is being really loud and annoying. Like, those are very different types of behaviors to look at.
1: Yeah, and I think this helps to sort of unpack some of the difficulty of the movie also because Cassavetti's approach to character, I think, really is very different from Hollywood. You know, in your conventional Hollywood film, uh, you've got goal-oriented characters who are psychologically legible to the audience, that are going after their goals. Like this is this is kind of like fundamental, classical Hollywood filmmaking, a movie that's going to prioritize the cause and effect chain of a story, of a narrative over pretty much anything else. And then that is driven by goal-oriented protagonists whose motivations are clear, who are driving the, for, the story forward by making choices in order to achieve or advance their goals. And Cassavetes is really not interested in that. His characters psychologically their motivations are so much weirder and richer and often much more ambiguous than in conventional films. And Cosmo very clearly is motivated. He loves his club. And we know that, you know, that he's very invested in the club. The the phone call kind of tells us this. But why is he calling the club at this moment when there's so much more at stake? And why is he so invested in what number it is that's on the stage? And how does that characterization of him as someone that cares so much about the club help us to understand what, like the, uh, killing the bookie? Does that help us to understand that? It's If it does, it requires you as a viewer, I think, to reflect quite a bit more on Cosmo as a character and what might be driving him and to do a lot of the legwork yourself as a viewer to think about and dwell with these kinds of ambiguities than what you would get in, even like, even Taxi Driver, right? Travis Bickle, is Travis Bickle like a hero? Is Travis Bickle a villain? You can make up your mind about it. There's evidence that kind of points in both directions. It's a very structured sort of ambiguity that turns on a particular question. It's like the spinning top at the end of Inception, you know? Is its it, is it going it to fall over? Is it not going to fall over? What's going to happen?
0: Yeah, there's an ambiguity, but it's a very obvious, like, either-or ambiguity. Travis Bickle will either assassinate a politician or he'll murder a pimp. He's either a good guy or a bad guy. Or with Inception, the world is either real or you're still dreaming. It's one of those, but maybe you're not sure which.
1: Yeah, and Ray Carney talks about this. Ray, we should I, back we, up we, and talk
0: about Ray Carney. We've well, mentioned him a few times.
1: Ray Carney is a Cassavetes scholar. He's written a number of books about Cassavetes. He is the dominant voice in Cassavetes scholarship. Yeah. Uh, in virtue of being one of the only voices in Cassavetes scholarship. And so when you talk about Cassavetes and you talk about scholarship on Cassavetes, Ray Carney is kind of unavoidable. And we... I've got lots more to say about Ray Carney.
0: Yeah, but what, there is there is much more to say about him, and we will unpack him because there are a lot of complicated things with Ray Carney, too. But we'll get into that kind of as the season progresses. Just for now, know that when we refer to Ray Carney, we're talking about the probably the most well-known
1: Cassavetes scholar. I want to read you a quotation. Do it. This is from the films of John Cassavetes, and this is Ray Carney. The mysteries, uncertainties, and vagueness in Cassavetes' work are real, They are not feigned, arranged, or calculated. The questions he asks are ones for which he does not have answers. It was not merely a rhetorical pose when Cassavetes insisted that he only made movies about things he, quote, didn't understand, or when he argued that, quote, you have to guard against knowing because knowing is a form of closure. To know something, this is Carney, to know something is to foreordain its trajectory, to limit its possibilities, to short circuit the learning process.
0: I think it's important to take some of that with a grain of salt. Because when Ray Carney talks about Cassavetes and his filmmaking process, he makes it sound like Cassavetes had no script. He didn't even know how the movie was going to end. And I don't think that's true. Uh, I think that's maybe taking it a bit too far. But I do think what's useful about that quote is this sense that Cassavetes is really into ambiguity. And he's into, like, very thick, complicated ambiguity. It's not, like, a clear question that he's posing. It's an assortment of very complicated relationships and people. And not only are they unclear to the viewer, but they seem like unclear to themselves. Part of why they behave so strangely is because they are not totally aware of what's going on within them.
1: I think there's something here also about, you know, how, what, how much of it is rhetoric and how much of it is reality is, uh, is itself an ambiguous question. But the idea that a filmmaker would make films where they don't know what drives the character. You would write a screenplay where characters do things and you, the screenwriter, cannot answer the question of why they do a certain thing that they do. And this, I think, points to like a difference from Hollywood, but also you know, a difference from, from other kinds of filmmaking too. And it kind of helps us maybe hone in a little bit on what makes Cassavetes a distinctive and unique filmmaker, is this real commitment to I don't know what you call it, uh, mystery, uncertainty, vagueness, ambiguity, but that that a form of mystery or a form of vagueness or a form of ambiguity that is expressed in very particular concrete moments, uh, moments of glances, moments of bizarre dialogue, moments of deviations from what people were supposed to be doing, you know, at a certain point in time, having to put the hood up on the car because it broke down on your way to the hit going and ordering the burgers to feed to the dogs and having a conversation with the person who's taking your order about those burgers and whether you want them individually wrapped or not. It's not just mundane details of everyday life. It is creating a real thickness, uh, an unanswerable thickness in some sense. And I think this is part, I think Ray Carney's onto something here, that this is part of what Cassavetes is after. Now, in fairness to you, can I finish the quote? Sure, yeah. Let me finish the quote. Yeah. So this is a conti- direct continuation of the quote that I was just reading before. To know something is to foreordain its trajectory, to limit its possibilities, to short-circuit the learning process. While every tendentious angle in Hitchcock tells us how he merely uncovered the sermons he had already hidden under his stones, for Cassavetti's filmmaking was a matter of diving into confusions and uncertainties and actually learning something. The experiences Cassavetti's filmed were as mysterious to him as they are to a viewer." The way I read Carney here is that what he's saying is that Cassavetes is not just refusing to give you information that he himself possesses. And for for Carney, this is the Hitchcock way of making movies is you set up a mystery or you set up some suspense, but Hitchcock knows all the answers all the time. And the, the pleasure you get from the film, such as it is, is in Hitchcock fooling you and then showing you how you were fooled. But ultimately, at the end of the day, Hitchcock knows all, is the master of all and has all the answers. And what I think Carney is saying is that Cassavetes does not have those answers to give you in the first place. If you go to this film and you watch it and you're waiting for Cassavetes to tell you why Cosmo is in the phone booth calling the club, you're waiting for Cassavetes to tell you why Mr. Sophistication is there, waiting for him to tell you why all of these women are going out with Cosmo when he seems to be such a lame guy, you're barking up the wrong tree. The film doesn't have those answers to give. And Cassavetes as an artist doesn't have those answers to give. That you're misunderstanding what these films are for if you're going to them in order to get that information. Um, That watching a film just for narrative knowledge is not what Cassavetes cares about. He's not invested in that.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good way to put It's that he does not care about that. And I think that Cassavetes... Found people more interesting if they were full of contradictions and couldn't be explained versus like here's exactly why this happened.
1: Here's just one. I realize this is maybe boring to our listeners, Shut but up, John. here here's one more one more Ray Carney quote on this same topic. Cassavetti's work shows us what it is to think in film. Not to use film to package and present a series of predetermined ideas that exist outside the movie and anterior to it, but to use filmmaking as a means of thought. For him, film does not represent the contents of thought, but figures the actual process of noticing, wondering, and understanding.
0: Sure. I think that, again, I think that we're on... Um, we, I think you and I agree about the types of characters and films that Cassavetes wants to make. I just want to be careful here, because a lot of these quotes, you can interpret them as, oh, Cassavetes had no plan when he was filming. He was, like, making it up as he went. He was learning about the character, quote-unquote, as he went, which means he was just, like, filming haphazardly and had no script, which is a common misconception about Cassavetes, because there is so much work about the way that he used improvisation, which I think is true, but also Cass wrote scripts. He worked off of scripts, and sometimes perhaps those scripts changed or there was some improvisation in what he did, but I don't know, I think that people have the idea that Cass would just like turn on a camera and let it roll, and that's the movie, and that's really not true at all. So I just wanna clarify that. But when we talk about like him learning about the character, there's a difference between a, a director who says, okay, this is gonna be a character who I haven't fully ironed out and they're complicated and they're not supposed to be fully known, and then a director who's like, oh, I don't know him. That means I, like, don't have a plan. I'm just going to, like, follow Ben Gazzara and watch him, like, dick around in a suit. And then, you know, that's me learning about the character. Like, it's, 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 uh, I feel like this description is better in describing Cassetti's relationship to his characters, not so much his relationship to the process of making the movie. And I don't don't want to confuse those two.
1: Well, I don't want to say, you know, one, I don't want to put words in Ray Carney's mouth. I do want to try and give the most charitable interpretation, I think, of his words that I can. But I think there is probably an important difference between uh, Cassavetes not having all the answers, meaning Cassavetes doesn't know what he's doing. It really actually turns on a question of what does it mean to know what you're doing? What does it mean to be competent? Can you do something without knowing fully what it is that you're doing and have this thing that you're doing be worth doing? You can ask this question about Cassavetes as a filmmaker, right? Um, can you be shooting the same dinner scene for hours and hours and hours when it's a less than five minute scene in a movie that has essentially no narrative consequence? Because you're looking for something very particular and you don't know exactly how to get it other than by having actors do a scene repeatedly and over and over and over and over again um, what does it mean to know? What does it mean to, to, uh, be in full possession of yourself and and in relation to your environment or in relation to your surroundings? Yeah. I think you can ask this question about Cassavetes as an artist and it's important to parse the difference, right? Um, I'm not saying, and I don't think Carney is saying that Cassavetes is, and I'm not saying that you're suggesting this either, that he's incompetent or that he doesn't know what he's doing or that it was all improvised or that he was just letting the camera roll and just seeing what happened, like someone's bad interpretation of a Jackson Pollock, right? right. That you just throw paint on the wall, and you kind of see what it looks like, and then you put it in the gallery. Very clearly, that is not Cassavetes' practice. But I think there is an but interesting... a lot of
0: people think that it is. Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: This this is important. A lot of people, I think, look at Cassavetes and and see someone that is not in full command of their potentialities as an artist. But what interests me about this also is that Cassavetes characters oftentimes are replaying this same dilemma, this same question of what does it mean to know something? What does it mean to be competent? What does it mean to be in full possession of yourself as an individual in relationship to the people around you or the community around you? Um, what does it mean to like be in the world? There is, I think, a, a rich, deep philosophical question that runs through Cassavetti's work about you know one's situatedness uh, in the world as a self. Uh, and I think we can see this with Cosmo too um, you know to what extent is he knowledgeable to what is extent to what extent does he know what he's doing? on the one hand, on the one hand, he's a ridiculous character, right runs this CD nightclub, The acts are, frankly, less than stellar in some ways. Uh, Yeah, this was uh, one of my
0: favorite. I think it was an IMDb review from a user who was like, what's up with this strip club? It's not even sexy. This is the lamest strip club in the world, which I would say to that person, actually, a lot of strip clubs are not actually that cool you might have some delusions there but also he i mean that's correct this is a very it's a very strange strip club there's nothing that's very like arousing about it it doesn't seem very funny none of the acts that they put on like it's just not uh, of all the strip clubs i can imagine going to this would not be a first choice for me ever
1: and yet at the end of the film that club is packed
0: Yeah, at one point Cosmo's talking about it and he's like, oh, yeah, I like put all the money I make back into the club and it's really paying off. It's really successful. And you as the viewer kind of like, yeah, right. I've seen a slice of this doesn't look like it's doing that well. But you're right, John. The last scene of the film is uh, an act at the club. Cosmo has gone back after doing all this violent work. And yeah, the club is full. Like a lot of people are there cheering, having a good time. It's packed.
1: And they seem to be there for the show. They're not just there because it's a bar that's open. They're watching the show. This
0: isn't their last choice where they're like, well, this place has liquor at 4 a.m. A man in his 60s wearing clownish makeup, singing songs, taking himself very seriously as an artist in this very not artistic context. But again, and also at one point, that character makes a claim that, like, oh, people come here to see me because I'm a very unique personality, which you're kind of like, oh, yeah, right. But no, they are here to see him. Like, they, they like Mr. Sophistication. People are here for this show, for this weird cast of characters, these weird acts. Like, you
1: can't always tell whether someone is saying something because they're just bullshitting or they're self-deluded, or it's true. And those categories are not always mutually exclusive either.
0: I know. So yeah, that's another kind of through line throughout Cassavetti's work, that characters are often saying ridiculous things and doing a lot of acting out, and yeah, quite a bit of bullshitting, and you can't really tell when they're being, you know, honest or deceitful. You can't tell if they're delusional or if they're right on. And yeah, like you're saying, uh, they might be bullshitting, but they might also be right.
1: We have a word for this in our in our marriage. What? This is a Cassavetes man.
0: A Cassavetes man, yeah. So uh, if there's a character in a film or in your life who's always like talking a big talk and uh, won't stop telling knock-knock jokes and is doing big bullshit. Voice- you really got to think
1: for these knock-knock jokes.
0: Well, I think it's because uh, I should mention to people that in the movie Faces, there's a character who's telling a lot of bad knock-knock jokes. And it's like, what is this guy's problem? But someone who, maybe what I'm trying to say is, who is really trying to, like, have a good time and is, like, forcing it in these very loud but uncomfortable ways. Things that are, like, ugh, just kind of kind of cringy, Over-the-top acting out immature behaviors. This is a Cassavetes man. Maybe yeah. you... Work for one, maybe you're friends with one, maybe, maybe you you're married are one. to one. Oh, oh snap! Oh. Okay, uh oh well.
1: This is, I think, a character archetype. This is like a the gift that keeps on giving for me as someone who watches and re-watches Cassavetes films is being able to see this kind of personality or character everywhere. You were talking about Spielberg earlier. You mentioned Spielberg. They're like, oh, you know, your Spielberg movie can have a cassavetti's man in it. And we should also add, you don't have to be a man. To be a Cassavetes man,
0: it does. It is. Uh, I think I am more likely to use the word "man" with it because there is a a toxicity to this type of behavior. There's a, an immaturity to it, and like a, it comes out of an unwillingness to really examine your true emotions and like the realities of your life, which is sort of like a toxic masculinity behavior. So I think of it as a Cassavetes man thing. But there are also women who do this type of thing um, in his movies too, and and you know. It's an archetype that could be applied regardless of gender, but it feels very, like, quintessentially male to me. I I think you should keep talking about Spielberg. Like, we're watching um, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. This protagonist who wants to abandon his family and run away into this fantasy made real of connecting with a... Like, that's a Cassavetes man thing to do. I can't handle my marriage. I can't handle my kids. I will escape into building, what else, doesn't? isn't he like building a giant mountain in his living room at one yeah. point? Yeah, right, like doing all these crazy, childish, delusional things. And what's fun about Close Encounters is that it becomes real. It like redeems it was, him. Yeah, like, yeah, right, because there are aliens, it becomes okay for him to act in this way. But, uh, you know, that character is at his core Cassavetti's man, just Delusional, ridiculous, won't stop goofing around, and also like refuses to be responsible, refuses to be honest.
1: Uh, It makes me think about Hook. Robin Williams is like a reverse Cassavetes man. He like learns how to become a Cassavetes man Mm -hmm. by going to Neverland. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, in some ways, it's about growing up or it's about being an adult and it's about like uh, the relationship between childishness and responsibility. Uh, and how those wires get crossed sometimes. And I think when we talk about husbands, we'll talk about yes. this quite a bit more.
0: And I think I want to add, too, uh, the way that we're talking now, it sounds like we are being very down on the Cassavetes man. Like he's a piece of shit guy. Sometimes. Who isn't, and that, Yeah, that is true. That is definitely true. But I think that in husbands, you get a stronger sense of the f- the wholeness of a Cassavetes man and how a lot of the Casfetti's man behaviors do come out of like a real sense of pain and like deep, real emotions. Um, And I'm not uh, like, I don't want to jump too far ahead to husbands, but like a lot of the crazy acting out behavior in that movie is because somebody dies, like your best friend dies and you don't know what to do. And also you live in a culture where like men don't get to cry and men don't get to have emotions. And so you just like go on a bender to Europe. Like you don't know how else to handle your feelings. So you just get drunk like all of that's just to say, I, I have a tender place in my heart for these complicated behaviors. I'm not trying to make it sound like a Cassavetes man is always a heel. Although, like, they are heels, but I,
1: you know. Well, here's maybe another reason why Chinese bookie is the great place to start. It is the high point of the Cassavetes man. This is the Cassavetes man as success. Because the Cosmos Club is successful, and guess what? He kills the bookie. He he accomplishes this outrageous impo- mission impossible uh to kill the bookie and he gets away with it and then he outsmarts the mob when they come for him with the double cross. Yeah. He is somehow like inexplicably and wildly improbably uh an action hero. Can we play another clip? This is the clip where uh Cosmo he has
0: succeeded in killing the bookie. And because of this the mob is freaking out. They're like, "Oh my god, he did it." Like he wasn't supposed to do that. We need to kill him now because it's going to, you know, people are going to find out that we were involved and they're going to come for us. We need to get Cosmo out of the picture. Cosmo is taken to this warehouse where he's going to be killed. He's there kind of waiting around with a mob guy and the mob guy just can't kill him. He totally falls apart uh, and starts going on a weird, like, tangent about his dad. Let's listen to it really quick.
2: My father was a nice guy. You should have met my father. He could listen to me like you could. That's why I like you and not many people are going to listen to my father. You cry when your father uh, died? He promised me one thing. He said, hey, don't let him bury me. He didn't like the electric in the gas in the water coming." Why don't you do yourself other. a favor and get me? Huh? You're an amateur.
0: So that clip is a little bit hard to hear, but uh, what's happening is the Tim Carey gangster cannot bring himself to kill Cosmo. Cosmo sees his weakness and he's like, hey, what are you doing? Get out of here. Take a walk. You're an amateur. This moment is the pinnacle of badassery to me. That someone has brought you to this place to execute you and you just dismiss them. You don't even need to fight them, you just tell them to take a walk.
1: You identify his weak point, which is talking about his father.
0: This guy is like talking in circles about his dad and like Cosmo just sort of is like needling him. He's like, yeah, you cry when your father died and he goes like, that's,
1: that's it, great. he crumbles. That's
0: it, yeah, that's the end. And then the even a, another great part, we don't play this clips, so it's very long, but uh, so Cosmo dismisses this mob guy, he leaves, Another guy comes, and that's the guy who's really trying to kill Cosmo in earnest, but he can't even find him. Cosmo is, like, hiding in a room in this warehouse. This guy is, like, running into every other room and, like, shooting at nothing. At a certain point, he shouts to Cosmo, like, you know you're gonna die. Like, come out here and, like, face me. Something along those lines. And you, the viewer, are like, okay, we're gonna have a cool showdown. But it never happens. Cosmo just leaves. He, like, goes down a back staircase and goes back to his club. There's no climactic shootout. And again, it's like he's too much of a badass to even fight, you know? He's like, I'm not going to fight you. I'm not going to kill you. I'm just going to leave. Like, you can just keep running around, shooting into empty rooms like a child. I'm going back to work. See you later. It's fantastic. Like it, it is strange to see this movie about this strip club owner who seems like such a seedy deadbeat. He was in all this debt. He gets out of debt. And he celebrates getting out of debt by going out gambling and getting into even more debt. Like Cosmo is a loser. And yet, in certain ways, he's really, he is, like, the badass that a certain noir angle wants him to be. Like he's the guy who gets the killing done. He's the guy who's like out mobbing the mob. Who is this guy? Is he a success or is he a failure? Like, it's really not a clear either or split. It's all tangled together and I love it. I love a good tangle.
1: Can we talk about style? Speaking yeah. of Cosmo, a man, a man a who cares about <sighs> style.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, That's a great part early in the film. He pays off a certain mob guy and he's like, Marty, I never want to see you again. Like, you have no style. I don't have that clip anymore. I'm sorry, but... Uh, no
1: class, no style. Yeah, he
0: like accuses this guy of not having any style. So style is important to Cosmo and it, I think it's important to Cassavetes, which might sound strange because some people f- believe that Cassavetes had no interest in style, he was only interested in having cameras follow around the actors. Uh, but remember... Cassavetti shot a lot of footage and he wasn't afraid to reshoot footage so I think that if something didn't look the way he wanted I mean he wasn't going to use it Cassavetes did whatever he wanted
1: let's be clear is Cassavetti making a movie about himself is, Ca- Wait. is Cosmo a reflection of Cassavetti's?
0: can we before we dig into that bigger question I just want to talk about like a nitty gritty style oh, yeah question.
1: I'm here for the knit and the grit
0: the knit and the grit okay we were talking earlier about this scene in the car where Cosmo is receiving all these ridiculous directions and also about how how dark that scene is and how, like, underlit and how it is very easy to watch this and think that, like, oh, Cassavetes just doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't know how to, like, light a scene. He doesn't know how to do this the correct way. I just wanted to point out this great thing that I read, again, in the Cuvaros book on Cassavetes. Um... Kuvaros is referring to two other scholars, uh, Ray Carney, who we've mentioned, and also Richard, is it Richard Combs? Okay, he's referring to two scholars, Carney and Combs, and according to him, they make this point that Cassavetes is kind of like reappropriating film noir lighting. Like in film noir, you have all these very hard shadows, there's a lot of intense contrast, but it's in this beautiful, like, stark black and white, and also you can see things clearly, to be fair to film noir. Kasfetis takes this same really intense lighting approach, and he first of all it's in color. This movie's in color, but like he he's just doing crazy stuff with light. Uh, there are various scenes that are super blown out, super overexposed, and then other ones that are very underlit, like this one. It's like Cass Vettys is taking the lighting extremes that look so beautiful and are done beautifully on purpose in film noir and being like, this is how lighting works in the real world. Like, if you have something super overexposed, you can't see, or if it's super dark, it's going to be super dark. Like, he kind of takes this aesthetic and just like, I don't know how to put it other than like he puts it into the real world and shows like, yeah, this is how crazy lighting really is, which I think is an interesting choice. But it does mean that there are certain very like dark scenes and very blown out scenes. And
1: And to be clear, like I think we've we've said this before in many ways, but I just want to be clear about it. Uh, It's not because he didn't know. Right. When that when that shot, when the scene with the map is so underexposed, it's not because he didn't realize that would happen. Right. In fact, there's a, a quote somewhere where he talks about it in particular, and he talks about how he trusted the audience to adjust to it and to, to as long as he didn't cut to something really bright in the midst of that, that the audience would get drawn into it because it was lit in that way. Here also, it's again, it's a choice. It's not... Uh, a necessity or an incompetency.
0: Another thing, we're talking about classical Hollywood style and how causality is so important. You want to know why something is happening, why a character is doing something. And uh, similarly, clarity is very important. You want to be able to see what it is that's happening. And I feel like there's something about his lighting that seems to be kind of poking fun at this. Like, I'm going to put so much light on this character's face that you can't see them. Even with all this information that's kind of, oh, you want to know everything about this story that happens? Like, here are the driving instructions. Here's this guy, like, stopping to make a phone call. Here he is getting the burgers. It's like he's saturating it with so much information and so much clarity that it becomes unclear. And it becomes, like, even more ridiculous. I don't know. I'm just just putting that out there. I'm not 100% behind that. But there's just like, there's something comical about how much information you see. And that it's like a, I don't know. You see so much that it becomes unclear. And I feel like that's a lot of what Cassavetes does too. He's giving you so many data points and putting drama on so many small things. that it's like, what I don't even know what to do with this anymore.
1: You have to figure it out.
0: That's right. You've got to figure it out. Let's go back to that question you asked earlier about... Uh, is Cassavetes making a film about himself? Yeah, I want to
1: know what you think. Is Cosmo an allegory for Cassavetes? And follow-up question, is Mr. Sophistication an allegory for Cosmo and or for Cassavetes? There's kind of like a a triangle in this movie where if you want to think about the relationship between the artist and their art, then you can kind of think about that as a relationship between Cosmo and Cassavetes and, and Mr. Sophistication and Cosmo And the reason why I'm thinking about this one is, you know, people talk about this, like Ray Carney talks about this, this is a point that he makes. But also, this is a film, and it's not Cassavetti's only film like this, but this is a film that is self-consciously and explicitly about art, about uh, entertainment, about creativity, and about how those things get practiced in the world, and about what those things mean to the people who are invested in them. And in that way, it is not dissimilar to filmmaking. And here also, you know, this is yet another reason why I think this is an interesting starting point is because it gives, if you buy this line of, of interpretation, it gives you a way to think about this film as being a reflection on what Cassavetes thinks art is and what Cassavetes thinks filmmaking is. And if you can glean something from that, then that can also help you then to look at the family dramas, look at even the studio work, and start to see some of those same ideas uh, play out in ways that are less explicit.
0: So I think I should answer that by talking just a little bit more about Ray Carney, who does make the argument that there's a very clear connection between the plight of Cosmo, the strip club owner and Cassavetes, the filmmaker, according to Carney Cassavetes was very quick to talk about like studio, like Hollywood studios and studio executives as gangsters. And I know In, you can certainly see a connection here. Like Cosmo just wants to be a guy who runs a strip club and makes his art. But these, you know, thugs are twisting his arm and making him do things he doesn't want to do. And they're interfering in his um,
1: freedom. It's like cabaret
0: that you got the Nazis Uh, on the
1: outside that are that are starting to impinge on the on the creative and personal freedoms that go on on stage and, and in that creative space.
0: Yeah, you've got uh, stories about artists versus bullies, and the bullies can be Hollywood studio executives, the bullies can be mobsters, the bullies can be Nazis, and then inside the club you have the person who's making their art. And it's also true that um, Cassavetes did a good bit of stage work and some stage directing, and not you know it's not quite as well-known as his movies, but he did have a relationship to, to the stage, to the theater. So I think that making this claim that... Cosmo can be kind of a stand-in for Cassavetes. I don't think that's off. I think it's interesting because Cosmo and Mr. Sophistication, this stage character played by Meade
1: Roberts. No relation.
0: Yeah, yeah, no. (laughs) God, I wish, John. Never mind. They feel sort of like two sides of the same coin. Cosmo is the more successful, potentially badass face of that or is like Mr. Sophistication feels so pathetic and just like so he's like a lecherous old man running around with these like younger women on stage but also he takes his art very very seriously. Let's hear a clip of him talking really quick. This is Mr. Sophistication talking about his art.
2: Look I don't want to pull a big star bit but people do come here because I'm some unique kind of personality I suppose a bit far out a bit freakish maybe but Not a freak at all. Yeah, but freakish. Straight laced. But freakish. But unique in my own way. And when things go badly, who gets the booing? I do. But when things go well, the music they, 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 they get the applause and all the cheers because they flash their
0: way! Hey. I love Mr. Sophistication. I was initially very turned off by his presence in the film, but the more I see the film, the more that I like him, and I appreciate him as this comical character who is so into his own art. And I think that the film also sort of laughs at him and loves him. The reason why I think there's an even stronger connection between Mr. Sophistication and Cassavetes than between Cosmo and Cassavetes is this end uh, scene. The end of this film is Mr. Sophistication on stage. He is singing a song, and he's into it, and the crowd is into it, and just as he's kind of, uh, I don't know, reaching like the catharsis of this song and wrapping it up in this kind of tender, quiet way, one of the dancers comes out behind him and she does something where she kind of like like lights part of his lapel on fire and quickly put, she does something where she there's like some flame that bursts and then she like and she her, makes
1: a joke at his expense. She
0: makes a joke at his and also she kind of reminds the audience that like hey this isn't just about a guy singing at a singing a song, you are at a strip club. This is also about boobs and sex. So here's here's Mr. Sophistication singing his song. I
2: can give you Anything but nothing in this great big world but I can't give you anything but love 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 hot love 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 hot love I can't give you all the show but love yeah, take it off. <laughs>
0: One thing that this audio really doesn't uh, convey is the look that's on Mr. Sophistication's face. After this has happened, he just has this look of supreme irritation and also sadness, then just kind of like walks off stage and everyone claps, but he's clearly really ticked off.
1: It's, uh, I read it as humiliation. And I read his, I mean, Mr. Sophistication is all about humiliation. Like the the only viable outlet for his art is this strip club. And yet there's kind of a sense of perseverance through it. He keeps showing up. He he is invested in it in some way. Uh, if he didn't care at all, then perhaps he wouldn't be so irritated by it. Uh, but there, I think, is a, a sense of perseverance through humiliation, which maybe aligns a little bit with, you know, and here this is an interpretive leap, but Cassavetes is own ideas about himself in relationship to cinema. He's an artist working in this medium. His films are not particularly successful. He has some critics that like his films. He's seen a little bit of uh, recognition, but relatively little recognition for the work that he's doing. uh, And oftentimes having to go make personal phone calls to theater owners to beg them to put a woman under the influence in the theater, that you've got one of the greatest films of all time in the can, and you still have to go crawling and begging for money and begging for people to put that movie out. Um, That for Cassavetes, being a filmmaker means being an artist, caring a lot about your art, and enduring Period. Enduring full stop, but enduring humiliation. Mm-hmm. Enduring gangsters um, forcing you to do things that you don't want to do. Enduring conversations with the money men. Enduring people with no style and no class that want to tell you what your style and what your class ought to be. That this is kind of the, the metadrama of Cassavetti's career is having to wrangle with these things. Which I think is part of the reason why he, he gains this notoriety for being the father of American independent film. It's not just that he made these movies, it's that he becomes an avatar for, for a way of making movies and for the kinds of trials and tribulations that independent filmmakers and independent artists are forced to go through within a commercially dominant system that, that is organized entirely around money. And also it doesn't help that he's a filmmaker, which is inherently an expensive medium. A film stock costs money, this it's is the point I wanna make. Yeah. And when you shoot a 100 to one ratio, That's a lot of money.
0: I think I like the way that this conversation is kind of bringing us back to this question of performance. I think that when we talk about social performance, whether it's, you know, at work or with your friends or with your spouse, there's sort of a, a judgment that can come with that. Like, oh, are you just a fake person? Are you a phony? Are you a liar? Like if there's something wrong with you and you're a bad person because you like you can't be authentic or like you can't be real or you can't be honest. And. In this movie, along with other Cassavetes films, social performances are not I mean, for one thing, I don't know how often characters are aware of their performances, but also they are like compulsive behaviors. And it's and again, it's often because there's some other reality or some other emotion that they can't like they can't bear to contemplate the fact that like being married and having children could have ruined their lives. So they're going to do this instead or like, "Ah, I just buried eight family members in six years. I'm going to make a knock knock joke instead. There's a real compulsive quality to it. And on that note, I kind of want to play a clip in which Cosmo was talking about performances Performance And part of what I like about this clip is that it's just, it's a very like sticky relationship between being comfortable with yourself and performing and this sense that like performing is more authentic than being yourself or like, or the, and also that you cannot stand to be, I, I don't know what to make of it. As Cosmo says, I confuse myself. Let's go ahead and play the clip. Here's Cosmo talking about performance. Oh,
2: look. look at me, right? I'm only happy when I'm angry, when I'm sad when I can play the fool, when I can be what people want me to be rather than be myself. You understand? Mm -hmm. And that takes work. Gotta work overtime for that. (laughs) Yeah, doesn't matter who you are, what personality you choose. Come on, baby. Come Come on, be, see, boy. Choose a personality. Come on, get so let's go down there I'll and give you a rundown after the show. Right, oh, we'll do a great show. Oh, watch out. We'll smile. <laughs> we'll cry big, glistening tears that pour onto the stage, and we'll make their lives a little happier, huh? So they won't have to face themselves. Come they can on. pretend to be somebody else.
0: And I think that's part of what I really like about Cassavetes as a filmmaker and the stories he chooses to tell and the characters he puts on screen. I feel like there are more and more movies these days where people are, in my opinion, unrealistically self-aware and are like learning things. I don't know. And I just, I don't experience people to be that way. I don't feel like people are off. The, are always conscious of what they're doing and why. And I actually think that people are like rarely conscious of what they do and why. And the way that Cassavetes creates this, like, not that's impossible to untangle between, like, authenticity and performance and, like, being honest and deceiving yourself and about deceiving other people and thinking that you're being honest when maybe you actually aren't or, like, thinking you know yourself and you don't. And I like that there's never, like, a clear way through that that never fully gets, like, you know, those lines never get untangled. And I find that to be really fascinating.
1: Yeah, and here, I mean, this is one of the more explicit Recognitions of that as a as a problem or or as a theme or as a topic, uh, then you get in a lot of Casavetti's films. You see characters essentially doing what Cosmo is talking about here in all of the films. Mm-hmm. Rarely do you get characters talking about doing it. This is where I think the self reflexivity of it being a movie that's about entertaining and it's a movie about putting on a show and it's a movie about performing gains you something in terms of being able to understand. That performance is not just about being on a stage. It's about everything you do. That performativity is kind of inherent in social identity. I mean, look, Cassavetes was, you know, decades ahead of his time in terms of thinking about identity in this way. I don't know about decades. At some point ahead of his time.
0: I think that there is something advanced about what he thinks about identity and performance. It's also interesting, too, that love is coming up so much in this film, because it comes up in other Cassavetes films. And love seems like something that it's impossible to separate from these questions of authenticity and performance. How can I love you if I don't know the real you? Am I loving the real you? Am I seeing the real you? Like who gets to see the real you? And are you pretending to love me? Are you being genuine when you say and do certain things? i just this question of love that's so much in this film. I don't know if we have to say a ton about it, but it'll come up in future films as well. It's a through, I don't know. I feel like we need to like touch on love a little bit.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, the song features it so prominently, and what I keep thinking about it is just this line: "I can't give you anything but love," and unpacking that, what is that supposed to mean? Um, the only thing I can give you is love. I cannot give you anything else. There's a question about what love is supposed to mean there, but there's also a question about what it means to be only capable of that. And I think about it in terms of Cassavetes as a filmmaker and the style of films. Like, you know, uh, I can try to give you the godfather, but I can't do it. The only thing I can give you is my love for this medium and my love for this way of making art and this way of making films and that's it like that that's all i can guarantee i can't guarantee you the commercial success i can't guarantee you another cabaret i can't guarantee you uh, a riveting genre picture there is the kind of this kind of like acknowledgement of the limitations of hum- what it means to be human but also this acknowledgement of you know unconditional giving this generosity Which, in a way, makes me think about Mr. Sophistication again. This, like, enduring humiliation in order to give something, in order to do something that you really have to care about other people in order to put up with all of that, in order to do what it is that he does, uh, what Mr. Sophistication does, but also what Cassavetes does. And so I think that there, you know, love is not just about interpersonal relationships, but also. Perhaps, and maybe this is something we can kind of like dig into deeper in future episodes, but there is a kind of artistic love or aesthetic love or this kind of generosity of spirit or whatever you want to call it that motivates Cassavetes to make these kinds of films. Um, And the idea that like, that's all he can guarantee you is an attempt, you know, trying, do giving some, it's the act of giving. That's more important than what it is that's being given (laughs) necessarily. Um, And so, you know, I can't give you anything but love, even when it looks like a knock knock joke, right? Even when it looks like, you know, uh, crass uh, behavior, even when it looks like splitting to go to Vegas with a child, Um, even when it looks like, um, I don't know, getting in a fight, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. That, like, the, that there is a kind of,
0: Maybe it's an acknowledgement of uh, just human dysfunction, that when people are trying to love each other, they often do like ridiculous things that do not look like love. And that's also, it's not to like condone those ridiculous toxic things or like abusive things, but also this maybe is coming out of like a love attempt, or at least what the character thinks is a love attempt, even if it's not. Maybe this is also a way of saying that so much of what humans do we think of as being love or we interpret it like, oh, is me loving you or me trying to love you, but it's like, actually, no, you're yelling at me or, or like, actually, you're having me committed or you're like, I think one great way of summing it up is I don't, again, I don't want to jump too far ahead into other movies, but in Love Streams, one of the last films that Cass Vettys directed, Casvetti's and Jenna Rollins, his wife, play a, um, a brother and sister and she drops in to visit him and like, we don't, it seems like it's been the first time in a long time. And Cassavetti's is like, oh my God, like, so good to see you. Oh my God. And they like embrace, they're so happy. And then like in the same breath, he's like, I'm so happy to see you. I have to go to Vegas. I, I have to take my son to Vegas. I have to leave right now. I'm so sorry. Like, oh, I love, you know, do whatever you want in the house. I'll see you when I get back. I really got to go to Vegas right now. And he like runs out the door. It's like, she's opened the door to come in and the door is still open. She's bringing luggage. and He's like, I got to go by like, Obviously, this is him avoiding his sister. There's someone who knows you so well that you can't even like stand to have them look at you and you love them, but you also like cannot stand them. Like you can't you cannot be around them because they know you too well. And I feel like this is a quintessential example of like, I love you. I need to get away from you or like, I love you. I'm being a dick to you. And again, I am not. I feel like as I'm saying, this sounds like I'm condoning abusive behavior, which I am not. All I'm trying to say is that so often in Cassavetti's films, he's trying to pick apart the weird things that people do when they claim to love each other or the ways that people like might avoid people that they actually love or like put up barriers between you know them and the person that they love. But being in love is not always like warm and easy. Sometimes it's like, oh, my God, my sister knows me too well. Like, I can't
1: do this. I think it sits for us as a question, a yeah. question for the for the other episodes. What is love in a film?
0: I think you, you cannot watch all of Cassavetti's films and not be interested in like, okay, what is love that everybody's talking about? All of you dysfunctional, knock-knock joke-telling
1: weirdos. Let's talk about the reception of this movie a little bit. We, we've already alluded to the fact that it was not commercially successful. And I want to be more precise about that. It was a disaster, a flaming failure of a movie everyone who liked woman under the influence because of its dramatic family melodrama was alienated by this crime movie everyone who is excited about a noir crime movie was alienated by the relative lack of crime and lack of action in this movie (laughs) Uh, no one liked going to see it it was raked over the coals by the critics and um
0: and it's fun to note too that Part of why people loved a woman under the influence was Jenna Rollins, and, and she's like for not good in reason. Yeah, well, and her performance was just incredible. And like, oh, all of the things that a a woman is struggling with as a wife and as a mother, and like, all of those things just weren't in this movie. Like, instead of Jenna Rollins being this kooky but you know very loving and devoted mother, you've got Ben Gazzara, who's a total heel, a degenerate gambler. Uh Womanizer. We, womanizer. Yeah, we have like violence that's not actually it's violent, but it's not like fun to watch violence. It's like sad logistical, like where do I park the car? Mm-hmm. Go get some burgers, better not have any onions. Let's talk about my dad violence. Like that's not that's not fun. That's <laughs> not fun violence.
1: In the criterion supplements for this movie, Al Rubin, the the producer, tells a story about how people hated this movie so much. That they, upon leaving the theater, would go and warn other people that were in line not to see the movie because it was so bad. They pulled this movie from distribution after like two weeks.
0: Yeah, I think so. John Cassavetes had like, of course, set up his own distribution, his own screenings, but the initial ones went so poorly; everything else just got canceled. I think that they tough, had
1: invested a lot of resources too. Actually, he had he had hired people and had an office like in New York. They they were expecting a big push for this movie, mm-hmm. and it imploded.
0: Yeah. Yep, 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 yep. Uh,
1: So it it did not succeed despite all the nice things that we've said about the film and all the reasons why we think it's an interesting movie. It did not connect with audiences. And I think this also points to yet another way in which Cassavetes is really not that he's totally isolated from, but is kind of like operating on a different wavelength from your Scorsese's and your Altman's and your Woody Allen's and your, your other um, new Hollywood director types Um, because Taxi Driver is like a hard movie to watch, but you get your action at the end, right? Like that movie was successful. Um, it was controversial. It's a hard watch, but ultimately it worked, you know, quote unquote worked in the theater. And this movie did not. It was just too far out for audiences to go for, um, And yeah, perhaps was a misstep not to have Jenna Rollins in it. The closest thing you get for a noir, there is no femme fatale. You know, we didn't really talk about this, but like the women in this movie are really very secondary. I mean, Cosmo has this has a girlfriend that's more important to him than the other women. He also has this connection to her mother, which is fascinating and not particularly spelled out. I was thinking uh, thinking along noir lines that the closest thing you get to a femme fatale in this movie is Seymour Cassell, yeah, who's like, right. I'm He's really like your friend, friend yeah. but I'm also, you know, selling you uh, up the river, right? Right, yeah. Um, and that's just not, that just doesn't give you the same kind of dramatic enticement.
0: No, it really doesn't. And it's... Uh... Yeah, we were talking about love earlier, and throughout uh, Killing of a Chinese Bookie*, there's a lot of references to parents. There's, like, Cosmo telling weird stories about his mom leaving his dad, and, uh, like, there's a point when he's, like, introducing a shudder club, and he's like, any mothers in the audience? Mothers who love their children? Which, like, what? Where'd that come from? Obviously, there's, like, a lot of talk about parents and mothers and fathers, but yeah, there's not a lot of, like, women in this movie, which... That's not a huge surprise. There aren't always a lot of women in movies, but no femme fatale, which you would expect to see in a noir and certainly no Jenna Rollins.
1: (laughs) So the movie was initially a commercial failure uh, for all the reasons that we talked about. Um, And it is important, I think, to note that Cassavetes had cut the first version of the film really quickly. He had an obligation to do some acting work. So he was kind of up against a deadline in cutting the film. A couple of years later in 1978, he went back and re-edited the film. My take on this is that I think he was still trying to chase this dream of commercial viability and that he thought if he could recut the movie, he could make it smoother and a little bit more streamlined and make it uh, a more inviting film to watch. That didn't pan out. The 78 version was not more theatrically successful either, although... I think, if I'm remembering correctly, it did become the standard home video version um, until, the, until the Criterion box set or something like that. So for a long time, the 78 version was the only version that people had access to. Uh, we should talk about the differences. We did promise this earlier in the podcast that we would cover the differences for people who watched one version or the other. Um, and uh, there are a couple of main differences here. One is that the 78 version cuts down on a lot of the performance scenes. So where the 76 version really kind of luxuriates in these performances and gives you, the, gives you kind of the whole scope of their patheticness or lameness or whatever you want to call it, the 78 version basically cuts them all out. You see a little bit of people performing, but then you don't actually see the performances unfold for the most part. Uh, another important difference is that the material is reordered, particularly towards the beginning, and so it's reordered. I think with one main idea in mind, um, and it has to do with the relationship between the gangsters and Cosmo.
0: Although I and you know, I agreed with you earlier on that I think the '76 version is probably the stronger version. That I feel like it just makes a little more sense, as much sense as like a Casavettes film wants to make. What I love about the 78 version is this. In the 76 version, it opens with Cosmo paying off the debt. there's kind of like no context. You're like, who is this guy where? All you really see is like they're at a cafe giving him a bag of cash. Afterward, Cosmo's at work at the club later that night and Seymour Cassell, one of the mobsters, uh, comes to the club with some women. They have a great time. And clearly he and Cosmo are becoming friends. And he says to Cosmo, like, Hey, I've got a place too. This gambling joins Santa Monica. You should come. Then after that scene, we do see Cosmo getting ready. He takes three of his dancers with him, he picks them up and pins corsages on them then he does go to this.
1: He doesn't pin the corsages. His driver has to do it because despite his emphasis in styling class, he doesn't actually know how to pin the corsage.
0: That's right. He has his driver pin on the corsages. Also, there's a, a way of reading this too that I can't, I think it might be Ray Carney who says this. I'm sorry if I'm wrong there, but the, like Cosmo is too modest to like touch a woman to pin a corsage on her, like near her bosom. Like, he, he, like he runs a strip joint, and yet, like, touching a woman that way is like, ah, 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 like, that's how averse he is to intimacy. Anyway, whatever. What I like about the 78 version is that it cuts out the scene that where you see um, uh, Seymour Cassell's mobster character coming to the club and then inviting Cosmo to come gamble. I like thinking about Cosmo as this, like, loser who... Like, he doesn't need someone else to tell him to go out and celebrate being debt-free by to, by getting into more debt. He doesn't need to be, in, like, that was his idea, to be like, oh boy, I paid off my debt, let's go gamble and celebrate. Like, there's no invitation needed. He doesn't need to, like, make friends with this guy and have the guy be like, oh, come to my place. Like, it's just of his own volition. So that, I feel like that adds a certain dimension to Cosmo's character that I like. On the other hand, I do like this, that initial scene in the 76 version I like seeing them become friends. And I think it's helpful too that you see a little bit of the club. Like it just kind of fleshes out some more about Cosmo, <laughs> pun there, flesh. <laughs> um, it, I don't know, just gives you a better understanding of the club and like the business that Cosmo runs that he's like so proud of. So that is useful, but.
1: Yeah. And I think in the 78 version, it can, the way it's cut can give you the sense that the gangsters are out to get his club. And the reason why, the reason why they I mean, want him. In the 76 version. No, I mean, in the 78 version, um, because in the 76 version with that initial conversation scene where Cassell's at the club, he does make a remark when, on the outside, I think, where he's looking and says, oh, this is a nice place. But I like to read it as not that they're they're casing the joint, but rather that they that Seymour Cassell is just like Cosmo, that he's just another Cosmo in a different part of L.A., Um, And that there is a possibility of a genuine friendship there. And that later in the film, when Seymour Cassell is saying, like, I liked you, you know, he's saying these things that it's that it's true, that there's some truth to that. Without that earlier scene where you see them having that conversation, there's no basis for later in the film when he's saying like, oh, I always liked you. You think it's just a lie, Um, when the earlier version gives you this scene that leads you to think it might be more than that. Without that scene, you know, kind of paradoxically, I think the 78 version leads you to more readily interpret the mob making Cosmo do this hit as a workaround, as just like a a means to get control of his club.
0: That's interesting. Yeah, I think that Ray Carney makes like the opposite reading of you. I think he reads it as, um, in the 76 version, Seymour Cassell's first trip to Cosmo's club is, like, bait. Like, he's going there on purpose, not because he has any interest in the club, but because he knows, like, Cosmo has a reputation for being an idiot gambler. And he's like, they're like, yeah, come invite him to gamble. He'll clearly get into a lot of debt, and then we can take his club. Like, this whole thing was a plot to just get Cosmo's club. Mm-hmm. But I see what you're saying, how, like, if you have this scene of, um... Seymour Cassell and Ben Gazzara together, you do get a sense of, oh, yeah, maybe they were. There was a genuine friendship there versus, like, this was a contrived.
1: Yeah, or maybe it's just a richer tension or, like, a richer contradiction. That's maybe true. both things can be true that Cassell was sent on this mission. And also, maybe he likes Cosmo. Maybe they are friends. Or, you know, maybe it's just an act, right? But it, it gives... I think a little bit of extra dimensionality to that relationship between those characters. Yeah. It also I- it, uh, um, just one other little bit. It also gives you the scene where Cosmo after he goes to celebrate, goes to that bar and like invites the cab driver in and is like telling the cab driver about his childhood in New York and telling him about like being by the river and that is cut out of the later version. Yeah. It's not necessary to the plot at all, but I'm kind of partial to that. I like to think of Cosmo as a guy, again, speaking of love, who's so generous that he would like invite a driver in, uh like a cab driver into the bar to like hang out with him. It's which interesting is that it's, it's loving kind of, and also pathetic.
0: Yeah, and also there's a way in which you can interpret that in two opposite ways. On the one hand, maybe Cosmo is a nice guy who's like, "Yeah, come in." Or Cosmo just wants to be seen as a like a high roller who's like, yeah, come take advantage of my largesse. Like, I'll buy you a drink, sad cabbie. And there's also a way in which that seems to play out when he's getting ready to go gambling with his three, he's got three dates, three of his dancers come with him. And like how he wants to seem like, I'm a big man, I'm gonna go gambling, I'm bringing three women with me, I rented a limo, we've all got these really tacky corsages. Like, is he being generous or is he just seem, trying to seem like
1: And with the champagne in the limo, here's another thing the 76 version gives you is in that prior scene with Seymour Cassell, Cassell is talking to him about Dom Perignon. And then you see later uh, Cosmo is telling the, the dancers about Dom Perignon as if it's like his class and his style and something that he knows all about, you know, because he's a club owner and he's living this lifestyle when actually it really looks like he doesn't know anything about it. And he's just taking stuff that other people told him and making it part of his personality.
0: That's true. I do like that part of it. I do like to like, yeah. Cause I think that he's with hanging out with Seymour Cassell and he's like, what is this? And Seymour Cassell's like, Dom Perignon. And then yeah, the next night he's like pouring a champagne. And one of the dancers is like, oh, I don't know if I like it. And he's like, no, it's so good. Like this is the good stuff. You got to drink it. Like, you don't know. Yeah, he
1: kind of forces her a little bit. Like uh, this like bizarre tension of, style and class and absolute classlessness and, and crude behavior uh, is intensified mm-hmm. in the in the earlier version, which is, you know, I think the 78 version runs, it's faster, right? Uh, it's paced a little bit better, but I prefer the slower version. I prefer letting things have time to breathe. I think if you're watching a Cassavetes film, you're in for a penny, you're in for a pound.
0: Yeah, right. There's really no, no sense in making it just a little bit shorter. And you know, in the '78 version too, it cuts out these more of these conversations about like his parents' weird parental recollections, and that just feels relevant. Maybe not to this film, but to like the Cassavetes' web of ideas that we're kind of trying to find our way through here. Although this did not do super well in the box office, uh, this film has had a real influence on uh, a lot of filmmakers and a lot of films, and I think that's part of why. I was going to pose this final question to you, John. I was going to be like, hey, John, I know we've talked about how interesting this film is, but do you like it? Do you actually enjoy watching this film that is so like slow and awkward in certain places? And I feel like I'm able to say yes, I do. Because I have seen so much of so much from this as and other movies I'd seen earlier, like the Safdie brothers, for instance, like, Part of why I like Cosmo is because he's such a screw-up, and I feel the same way about Howard in Uncut Gems. Like, I remember some people seeing that movie and talking about it with them, and they were like, yeah, I just couldn't get into it because Howard is so annoying. And, like, that's part of why I loved Howard. I love how annoying he is, and I love that he, like, can't do anything right in watching him, like— spiral out of control is like the pleasure of that film. And it's the pleasure of good time. These people who have like insane ideas, and they're like, it's okay, I'm gonna make it work. And you're like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then they die and you're like, oh my God, you were never gonna make it work, but I so believed you could for a while. There are a lot of elements from killing of a Chinese bookie in another film, The Big Lebowski, which I have loved for a long time. Uh, another film with weird noirish elements. Another film about, like, screw-ups who actually kind of figure something out and are successful in some way. Um, And also another film that is similar to Cassavetes' style in general because there's so much rambling dialogue, so much of people, like, talking past each other, so much, like, repetition that is sometimes kind of, like, hard to take at your first exposure. And so I think that because I have liked those movies... Those sort of like set me up to see Chinese Bookie and be like, oh yeah, there's like something, I'm able to find this
1: funny versus just like purely annoying. Talking about The Big Lebowski, like that's also a movie that's about genre. It's a movie that's in genre, but is also about genre, right? Like taking um, the noir plot or like taking the big sleep and convoluting it so much that it becomes even more incoherent, but also pulling in these Western genre things and making you ask questions about like, What and musical elements too? what genre are we even in in this movie Mm -hmm. and the way that um, killing of a Chinese bookie is also playing with genre or pushing the boundaries of genre or raising questions about genre. I think also you see down the line in in like Indie Wood type movies and Mm -hmm. further neo-noir films like beyond the 70s, you know, into the 90s and things like that. Um, Of course, Jackie Treehorn. Is the successful version of Cosmo? Yeah, he's he's like the platonic. Played by Ben Gazzara, but he's like the platonic ideal of Cosmo, right? Mm -hmm. If Cosmo actually was all of the things that he thinks he is, he would be Jackie Treehorn, right? uh, Which is an interesting, interesting um, casting choice, and I think acknowledgement of influence as well. Speaking about the champagne and the Dom Perignon, like the. Watching The Big Lebowski again, in full disclosure, when I say recently, I mean like a couple of weeks ago. I was thinking about the movie and we were prepping the episode and so I went and watched it again. I was Uh, watching it too. I was there. Yeah, well.
0: Okay, go on.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, aren't ya? (laughs) Um, But the way that Characters in The Big Lebowski will take things that other characters have said and repeat those lines of dialogue. Like uh, the dude does this regularly where he takes things that other people have told him and he passes it along because he thinks that's how people talk or that's he thinks that's the right way to talk. And and you the joke is that he he doesn't know what he's doing. He's just like a conduit for these these like verbal phrases, um, that are circulating through this movie. Um, Gosh, I should have written them down.
0: No, I mean, one of the big ones that happens early on is um, he's at Ralph's and uh, H.W. is on the TV. This aggression
1: will not stand. Yeah,
0: this aggression will not stand. And of course, that comes back later on when they're talking about like the rug and how, you know, he can't back down and things like that.
1: In the parlance of our times. In the parlance
0: of our times, yeah. You
1: know, all of these like repetition jokes that punctuate that movie, they do, I think, have have a progenitor in, in killing of a Chinese bookie, um, where, you know, Cosmo talking about Dom Perignon is like doing the same kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and in general, this question of like, is somebody just a loser? Are they just like, is their self-presentation of themselves as being competent and even minimally successful? Is that just an illusion is that just a performance? Is that just cobbled together from other things that they've seen somewhere else, and they're presenting it as if it's an authentic personality? Yeah. You see that I think a lot in in um, in The Big Lebowski, for instance. Yeah,
0: and it also like returns us to prickly questions about performance and authenticity and honesty. Like, is somebody total like a, if somebody's repeating what they've heard? Are they dishonest? Are they stupid? Is there is there a way in which they can be right, even if they are just parroting what someone else said? Is there a way in which they are, like, onto something, even if they are lying? A way in which they are revealing something about themselves, even if they are trying to be dishonest? It's all very tangled. Mm-hmm. I like it. Okay. I'm going to close this out. This has been a long conversation at this point. It's probably time to wrap it, at hey, what, least for What are now. we doing next time? Next time... We are doing Husbands. That's right. Which is uh, starring John Cassavetes, Peter Falk, Falk. and Ben Gazzara. Ben Gazzara is
1: back. Ben Gazzara is back. Back to the future. Mm -hmm.
0: It is another interesting film about toxic masculinity, about uh, self-destructive behaviors, about social performance, about love, and also about the kind of sticky relationship between love and A loss of control, a loss of control of your surroundings, a loss of control of yourself. Before we go, I want to play one last clip from Killing of a Chinese Bookie. Uh, In this clip, Cosmo has just given his team of dancers and Mr. Sophistication a pep talk for why they need to get out there and perform for the crowd. And I don't know, a final portion of that hype up moment is singing this song, This is a song that also comes up again in uh, the film Faces, and because it comes up multiple times, um, I thought it was worth some extra attention, and it includes so much of uh, what we've talked about. We've got love, we have self-destruction, we have a loss of control, self-sabotage, men, it's all in this song. So, I'll play us out. Play us
2: and... off, dear. We'll see you guys next time. Oh, come on, getting into it! Come on, Teddy, get into it! Wars have come and wars have gone. History goes on and on. But ever since this world began... No! not war has conquered man, Caesar fought to gain Good. control. Good. Worldly wealth was Caesar's goal, but then Cleo played her hand, and love conquered just as planned.